0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in
1: person.
2: Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you all would please stand, and Father Shearer is going to give us an opening prayer.
1: Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, as this Sunday draws to a close, we thank you for the great gift of the Resurrection and Our ability to participate in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass on this Resurrection Day, this 5th Sunday of Easter. We pray that you can continue to work in the hearts of all those who believe that gift of transformation so that we may truly be your sons and daughters, witnesses of your resurrection to the whole world. We pray that you send your Spirit upon us and upon our speaker this evening, that through that Divine Spirit we might learn the truth, the truth of your work in our history so that we may know your infinite care for us, your tender love for us, and all the wonderful design which you have been working so as to bring the good plan to fruition. We entrust ourselves during this month of May to the hands of our loving Mother, and so we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.
2: Thank you so much, Father. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. Brendan McGuire.
3: We're here to talk tonight and next Sunday night about the fall of Constantinople and the rise of the Ottoman Turks. And really to some extent what we're trying to do is uh, encapsulate several hundred years of historical development into a single moment. That is the fall of Constantinople in 1453 to the Ottoman Turks. Uh, Now the fall of Constantinople itself is sort of symbolized in this image that you have here before yourselves. I'm proud of this image because I took this picture myself last year. I don't know, it's kind of amateurish, but I, I like it. But uh, it's uh, this is the central dome of Hagia Sophia, the greatest Christian church ever built. Uh, and as you can see, it's dilapidated. The mosaics are, are in a relatively poor condition. Um, this is a building, of course, where you can see the the Islamic scroll work on the top of the dome. And you can see evidence of the fact that this building was used as a mosque for hundreds of years. Uh, Hagia Sophia in many, in many ways symbolizes um, the evolution of the city of Constantinople itself over the course of several hundred years as as Hagia Sophia evolved from church to mosque and then of course to museum as Turkey attempted to secularize itself in the 20th century. Um, But what we're gonna try to do today is really historically contextualize the background to the fall of Constantinople to the Turks, because this is an event uh, of, of a magnitude that's very, very hard for modern people to grasp. It's really hard for us to imagine for the medieval psyche, for Byzantines, for Westerners, and for the Turks themselves, how big of a deal it was when the Byzantine Empire finally fell. Um, the, the city itself, in the minds of Byzantines, and for that matter, in the minds of Westerners, the city itself was protected by a couple of different things. It was protected, first of all, by these monumental Theodosian walls that you see here in an artist uh, representation of the siege. Uh, the Theodosian land walls had been built by uh, the official Anthemius in the time of Theodosius II in the fifth century. Uh, they're a monumental work of engineering. If you go to Istanbul today, you cannot miss them. You can't possibly miss them. In fact, you have to go through them when you take the tram from the airport into the old city, uh, and, and, and you, you get, really get a sense of what it would have been like to besiege this city. But more importantly than the walls, much more importantly than the walls, the city of Constantinople was protected by the mother of God. Uh, and here you have a mosaic, a mosaic from Hagia Sophia uh, itself which uh, I also took this picture and I I didn't have proper equipment which is why it's kind of angled from the bottom. Uh, But what you're looking at in this picture is a symbol of the mother of God, the Holy Theotokos, the ever Virgin Mary, being presented with two gifts by two emperors. On the right, you have the emperor Constantine uh, presenting the Virgin Mary, the mother of God with the city of Constantinople. On the left, you have the emperor Justinian presenting the mother of God with the Basilica, with Hagia Sophia, which was rebuilt uh, in Justinian's reign. The notion that the city of Constantinople was really protected by the Theotokos, much more so than by the walls, uh, is something that's a major part of Byzantine lore. It was a major part of the Byzantine psyche all throughout the Middle Ages. The city of Constantinople survived sieges throughout its history by armies upwards of 100,000 or even 200,000 men. It survived sieges by Slavs and Avars, by Arabs and Turks. Uh, The city of Constantinople withstood many, many different sieges, um, palace coups and civil wars. Generally speaking, civil wars were the only things that could, that could cause Constantinople to be conquered. Even the Fourth Crusade, to some extent, was the product of a civil war. But leaving that aside, the, the walls of Constantinople had never really truly been breached by an external enemy, by an enemy who didn't have some kind of allies within, ever in its history. Right? The city was protected by the Theotokos. And so when the city of Constantinople fell, and it fell in part, as you see here, of course, due to the artillery of the Turks. When the city fell, it was, it was not only the end of an era, it was something that kind of shattered the religious psyche of Byzantines and of Westerners. It was something that brought about tremendous, tremendous soul searching. And for the Ottoman Turks, it vindicated their imperial project. The, the project of empire building that the Ottomans saw themselves as being engaged in was in their minds vindicated by their success in besieging this city. So, what we're gonna do is take a look at this event and its context, and, and the event in itself, is, it's sort of simple to say, just before dawn, on the 29th of May, 1453, it was the Turkish Sultan Mehmed II. Uh, he had been besieging Constantinople for months, and he ordered the assault that would bring an end to over 1,000 years of Christian history at Constantinople, and institutionally, it would bring an end to over 2,000 years of Roman history. Uh, the ancient Roman state, of course, having been transfer- transformed over the centuries into a Christian empire, it had survived in the Greek East long after it had fallen elsewhere, including in the Latin West. So you have this ancient state that finally meets its doom, right? and if we're going to come to understand how this catastrophe could happen, we're going to have to understand several hundred years of history leading up to it. Right? How this catastrophe comes to befall the East Roman or Byzantine Empire in 1453 is something that it's going to take a lot of background work to really. Come to grips with. Uh, the significance of this event for both Western and Near Eastern history is also a topic that we're going to deal with over the next couple of talks. We have to understand not only what brought this event about, right, but then what this event meant for the Turkish world, for the Islamic world, for the Western world, and for the world of Eastern Christianity. So, we're gonna have to deal with a few different things. First of all, these questions. How did did these events come to pass? Second of all, what was their significance? And when we're dealing with these questions, we're gonna come up against this idea. It's a major part of the Greek Orthodox psyche to this day, that the fall of Constantinople to the Turks in 1453 was the fault of the West. And it's bizarre, it's counterintuitive, but it's something that Greek schoolchildren have been taught at least since the age of Greek nationalism in the 19th century. Right? The 19th century brought about tremendous changes in terms of how Greeks visualize themselves as a nation as it did, for for that matter, for the rest of Europe. And so it's really in the 19th century that you see this view becoming popular among Greeks, that the fall of Constantinople to the Turks, the destruction of the Byzantine Empire, was actually something that was the fault of the West. And this picture kind of tells it all. This is a picture of uh, Greek monks, Orthodox Greek monks, protesting the visit of John Paul II, Saint John Paul II, uh, to Greece in 2001. And they're holding up a sign that says, Antichrist, Pope, get out of Orthodox Greece. Uh, And this is mild compared to many of the signs that were held up. One that I love (laughs) is this one. You see it in the background. Papa persona non grata <laughs> <They're> <laughs> trying, trying to, to throw together their Latin, Italian, whatever it's supposed to be. Um, but you know, this is, well, it's kind of awkward too because a Greek priest is also called a Papa, so you, you, have to, you have to watch out there. But anyway, Papa persona non grata, you know, you know what these guys are trying to say, right? And, and looking at this picture, it, it's visually jarring for people, it's visually jarring for Christians, especially in the West, to see something like this. Because you look at these guys and you say to yourself, this isn't, this isn't Hamas this isn't Hezbollah, uh, these are not Muslims, these are Orthodox Greek monks. And that's, that's jarring to people. And so we're, we actually, it's important for us as part of Catholic adult education to confront this view, to determine whether or not there's any merit to it. Uh, and in order to do so, we really have to look at Byzantine political history. And this is going to be kind of the, the bulk of the heavy lifting that we're gonna try to do tonight because the fact of the matter is that This view here, the the idea that the fall of Constantinople, the fall of the Byzantine Empire is is the fault of the West, um, it's something that's that's so popular, it it, it exists in kind of high and low versions of the theory, as it were. I I think it's safe to say the high version of this theory that 1453 and the events of 1453 are the West's fault, the high version of it is what you find in um, something like, say, Stephen Runciman's history of the Crusades. Uh, or elsewhere, but Runciman is a great example because he's a great rhetorician. Right? And uh, Run- when Runciman talks about the Fourth Crusade in 1204 and the significance of the Fourth Crusade, he says these, 13, these 13th century crusaders, when they sacked Constantinople, they fatally weakened the Byzantine Empire. He even asserts if it weren't for the crusader sack of Constantinople in 1204, um, the, the Byzantine Empire would have risen uh, to new heights of strength and conquered all the Turks, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. It's, it's sort of fanciful, I think, wishful thinking on Runciman's part. Um, but really the idea that the, the, the 1204 Crusader conquest of Constantinople um, left a, a mortal wound on the Byzantine body politic Uh, is something that, it has a kind of a long pedigree in 19th and 20th century historiography, and that's kind of the high version of the theory. The low version of the theory is more what you're seeing here with these monks, uh, where they might have a somewhat vaguer understanding of Byzantine history, and they're saying to themselves, any association with Latins, any association with Westerners. It associates us with heretics. It brings down the wrath of God upon us. And in some very vague, very loose sense, they associate the fall of Constantinople to the Turks with the reunion councils of Lyon and Florence that happened in the 13th and 15th centuries, respectively. So in other words, they say to themselves, wow, we know in a very vague sense, we know that back in the Middle Ages, uh, we sort of consorted with Latins and we flirted with Latins as a people and then the Turks conquered us. And so they, there's gotta be a connection there. Right? It, 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 can't, it can't just be by accident that those two things happen. Uh, and so this theory, it's, it's kind of an incohate theory. It, it's, if anything, it's more of a feeling than a theory uh, when you're talking about people like these monks. Uh, it, but it's something that has wide currency among the Greeks and it's something that we really, really have to confront. Now at first blush, this theory is kind of odd to someone who's actually a student of Byzantine history. Uh, And it's odd for a variety of reasons. It's odd given the tens of thousands of Western soldiers and commanders who fought for the Byzantine Empire all through the period of Byzantium's decline from the 13th through the 15th century. Uh, It's especially odd given the frantic efforts of the papacy during this period to organize crusades to save Constantinople. Uh, But the, the real reason why we have to understand this theory to be wrong it lies in the fact that we have a much better understanding of this than we used to. We have a much better understanding of Byzantine political history in the Paleologan period. Okay, And that's what we're going to try to address tonight, at least in part, at least to scratch the surface, to give, to give ourselves a sense. If we're going to look for the causes of Byzantine decline, it's all too easy to say, well, the Fourth Crusade happened in 1204, and then 250 years later, the Byzantine Empire fell. Bam, we got it right there. It's, that, that's too easy, it's too facile, and, and it's wrong. Uh, it's also all too easy to get superstitious the way the monks do and say, oh, if you flirt with Westerners, God will punish you, or something like that. Uh, and even that theory, it sort of ignores the details of the fact that uh, the more they flirted with Westerners, the better luck they had uh, in, the, in, this, in this period anyway. So, uh, so be all of that as it may what we really have to look at is the details, the nitty gritty of Byzantine political history. We're, we're going to kind of get down in the weeds here and talk about the Peleologan Logan dynasty. Uh, we also have to take a look to some extent at the history of the Islamic world during the centuries leading up to the 1453 siege. We really can't give a complete account of the events leading up to the siege, without understanding the early history of the Ottoman dynasty and really the nature of what had been happening to the Islamic world over the course of centuries leading up to 1453. Um, you know, how many of you saw how many of you saw de Souza's movie about Barack Obama, the, the 2016 movie? Yeah, a few of you. The fewer the better. I, I saw it. Was not impressed with it, frankly. Uh, and the, but the, the one error that I found to be really disturbing in Dinesh D'Souza's movie uh, was the idea that the Islamic world is monolithic, Okay, the, the Islamic world is just one thing. And he, he even asserts in this movie that, that the Islamic world is forming into the United States of Islam. He actually uses that expression and, and threatening to destroy the United States. And uh, this kind of a view, obviously it's alarmist. There's a political agenda behind it. But anyone who's a student of Islamic history finds it laughable. Uh, the Islamic world has never been a monolithic entity. Uh, and the closest it ever came to being a monolithic entity was maybe during the Abbasid Golden Age which was a long time ago. There's a lot of water under the bridge. A lot of water under the bridge since around the year 900. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Okay, one of the things that had been happening to the Islamic world since around the year 900 uh, was the immigration into the Islamic world of large numbers of people that we call Turks. Now, uh, Turk is a very generic, very general ethnographic term. We're talking about Central Asian nomads who are recruited as mercenaries. They became soldiers in the Abbasid Caliphate in the 10th century. Eventually, you know, by the middle of the 10th century, the Turks were basically ruling the Islamic world. They, they came to rule the Islamic world in much the same way as Western barbarians came to rule the Roman Empire. Right? You enter the empire, you become soldiers, you, be, you become enrolled in the service of the state, and eventually you subvert the state. And that's kind of what happened to the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, but the, the Turks themselves had a hard time, they had a hard time grouping themselves into a functional empire or a functional state. It, it certainly wasn't the United Emirates of Islam or something like that. Uh, the Turkish world tended to be divided al- along tribal lines, along clan lines, along linguistic lines, and along historical lines based on circumstance, based on their service in the Islamic world. Uh, and so what, we're, what we see as the Byzantine Empire weakens, and this is very oversimplified, very facile, but what we see is that uh, after, say, the late 11th century, larger and larger numbers of Turks were able to move into Eastern Asia Minor, to move into Anatolia and threaten the Byzantine Empire directly. Uh, They weren't always politically united. Their fortunes tended to rise and fall based on whether or not they had a powerful emir to lead them at the time or something like that. Uh, but the rise of the Turks as a power within the Islamic world is something that we have to kind of have in the back of our minds. Um, so. But anyway, in the meantime, let's take a look at Byzantine political history in the Paleologan period. We should have a map here. Oh, there we go. Hey, we got it. We're in business. Okay. Uh, so, all righty. So these are the three things that we're gonna to try to come to understand when we talk about the rise and fall of the Paleologan dynasty. We're gonna talk about the achievements of the first Paleologan emperor, Michael VIII, the catastrophic failures of his son, Andronicus II, and then the terrible Byzantine Civil War of 1341 to 1347. We're gonna to try to keep names to an absolute minimum, I promise you. Um, the problem with doing Byzantine history is that everybody has the same name. Uh, you know, Anyone who's not named George is named Michael or Andronicus and it's, it gets really, really problematic sometimes, especially when you have John V who's having a civil war with John VI early in his reign. Uh, and then later in his reign, he has a civil war with John the Seventh, and so it just it gets a little bit confusing. Uh, the fact that John the Fifth reigned after John the Sixth died—never mind. It just—it's all—it's—it's it's all ridiculous. So, we'll—we'll we'll, we'll try to keep it under control as far as names go. <laughs> um, but first, we'll, we'll start with Michael the Eighth and his achievements. Bam! There we go. Everybody see the map? Sorry about this map. It's—it's it's, uh, taken from an old historical atlas. Um, but in any event. Um, To understand Michael VIII, uh, we have to point out a few different things. Who was Michael VIII? Michael VIII was the Byzantine military leader who retook Constantinople from the Latins in 1261. That was his first major achievement. Uh, He was the regent, actually, for the young prince, John IV Laskaris. John IV was um, an emperor of a splinter state that had been created when Byzantium fell apart in the 13th century. Michael VIII's um, achievement was as regent for young John IV to retake the capital, to retake the city of cities, Constantinople, and to turn it back into a functioning imperial capital. Uh, To some extent, the the way in which Michael VIII was able to be a successful emperor and a successful leader, it was due in part to the fact that he was importing functional institutions. He was importing a functional bureaucracy and a functional uh, military from Asia Minor, from Nicaea, where they had lived in exile during the Latin occupation of Byzantium. Michael VIII was a guy uh, as regent for the young prince who showed himself to be alert. He showed himself to be very persuasive, very skilled as a ruler and a commander, and of course, ruthless. And his first ruthless act is what occurs right after he retakes Constantinople for the the Lascarid dynasty, which is he takes the young emperor that he's regent for and uh, he blinds him with hot pokers. Uh, no, you have to do that if you're gonna start your own dynasty. I mean, wouldn't you? Now, this is, this is a problem for Michael VIII because it gets him excommunicated. And uh, being excommunicated is a little bit of a problem for him. Uh, it's, it's not as much of a problem as it would be for you and me because when you're a Byzantine emperor, you can fire the patriarch who excommunicates you. And uh, so he ends up doing that. He ends up simply firing the patriarch who excommunicated him, appointing another patriarch whom he would later fire. Um, but you know, it's, be that as it may, you know, it's, it's off to a little bit of a rocky start in terms of Michael VIII's relationship with the church. Um, but politically speaking and militarily speaking, Michael VIII was a very, very strong leader. And during the course of his reign from 1261 to 1282, he was able to achieve military victories on several different fronts. I think we can identify, uh, at least Warren Treadgold identifies six different military fronts on which Michael VIII was fighting. Uh, the first one is up here in the north. Let's see if we can get the pointy thing here, here we go. We have the Serbs and the Bulgars, who although they were Byzantine Christians themselves, They were enemies of the empire. They liked to take advantage of the empire's weakness. Uh, At various times, they even had ambitions of conquering Constantinople themselves. And Michael VIII was able to take a very firm stand against the Serbs and the Bulgars, win very important victories that secured the frontier there. Michael VIII was also able to win some important victories here in the south of Greece where you see the, the Duchy of Achaia. Right? This, these are leftover French crusaders who have a kind of an independent state that they rule there. It's sort of a, a motley, weakly organized, feudal Latin state in the south of Greece. Michael VIII was able to win some important victories against these guys at various times, take the leader's prisoner and force concessions from them, uh, et cetera. Uh, he also won important victories against the Venetians Here in the Aegean Sea, generally speaking, he was able to expel the Venetians from some important islands uh, and assert Byzantine naval supremacy in the Aegean Sea, which is very, very important. Michael VIII also won important victories against the Turks. And this is why you see here by 1265, the Byzantine frontier being restored all the way out here in Anatolia. These cities like Nicomedia, uh, cities like Brusa, also known as Bursa, uh, Philadelphia, Laodicea, these cities at various times over the course of a couple hundred years were sacked by the Turks. And so to push the frontier out more towards the plateau is a, it's a very big achievement for Michael VIII. Uh, very importantly, Michael VIII won victories against Byzantine splinter states and rebels, uh, particularly here where you see the, the despotate of Epirus in Western, uh, the Western Balkans, I guess you could say. Uh, this despotate was a splinter state that had arisen early in the 13th century. Michael VIII was basically able to turn them into vassals of the empire. Uh, most importantly though, see that was five, our, the sixth front on which Michael VIII wins important victories is against Charles of Anjou. And now Charles of Anjou Very, very significant figure in terms of of 13th century power politics. Uh, Charles of Anjou was a younger brother of St. Louis IX of France, of course. Uh, Charles of Anjou was a man of tremendous ambition. He wanted to rule Sicily for himself. And after 1261, Charles of Anjou had ambitions of reconquering Constantinople for the Latins. So now, if if you're going to reconquer Constantinople for the Latins, and you're Charles of Anjou, what do you try to get the Pope to agree to? What do you try to get the Pope to endorse? A crusade, right, because having the pope call it a crusade, that's actually the best way for Charles of Anjou to recruit soldiers. He can't, he can't recruit soldiers on the, basis of, um, on the basis of his financial resources or on the basis of his feudal authority, but he could theoretically recruit soldiers if the pope called a crusade. Now, if you're Michael VIII Peleologus, do you want a crusade? No. Uh, so if you're Michael VIII, what's the best way to, present a, uh, to prevent a crusade from happening? Reunite the churches and the schism, and then there can't be a crusade. It's a fantastic idea. (laughs) So Michael Dieth is sitting there and he's saying, well, this, this, that, this one's easy, right? We just, we just reunite the churches and the schism. And, and he had a friendly pope in Gregory X who was open to this idea. Uh, the only problem for Michael VIII was that most of his clergy were not open to the idea. This is where he has to fire his second patriarch, actually. Um, and uh, I've actually, I, I've read Michael VIII's speech to the clergy on the subject of this union with the Western church. And it's actually a fascinating exposition of the Byzantine religious principle of economia. Economia is a a religious principle that is very unfamiliar to Westerners. There's really no analog for it in Catholicism or in Protestantism for that matter. It's it's a principle that we're not really familiar with in the West, Um, but economia, it's basically a, it's a rough way of getting around practical difficulties uh, when morality seems to be getting in your way. Uh, Economia, it's a way of saying, well, you know, the rules say this, but under the circumstances, if it's a big enough deal, you could kind of make a strong enough argument. We, we'll just do that. And uh, I, I, I don't mean to trivialize it. That's basically what Michael VIII says. Right? In, in his, speech, his speeches to his clergy, where he's trying to persuade them to go along with a, a union with the Western church, he says, oh, you know, it's economia. We all know that this union is nah, not necessarily desirable, but you've got to play ball, and if you can't beat them, join them. And uh, so we're going to have a union of churches. Uh, he couldn't really get any senior clerics to go along with this. So he ended up sending a delegation of uh, senior imperial officials on the one hand and junior bishops on the other hand who went to Lyon in France in 1274 and attended the famous Council of Lyon in 1274, where they signed, they signed on to a union of the churches. Now, this, this is a union in 1274 that we, we have to analyze it in, in a couple different ways for Michael VIII. On the one hand, as a union with the Western church, it, it very much helped Michael VIII's foreign policy. It forestalled a crusade from Charles of Anjou. It, it bought him some precious time to strengthen Byzantine imperial institutions, to strengthen the Byzantine army. Uh, it allowed Michael VIII to, um, to basically not have to worry about his most dangerous foe, which would have been Charles of Anjou. Uh, on the other hand, it does cause the beginnings of splinterings within the Byzantine church, uh, within the clergy of the empire, especially the, the upper clergy. Uh, you have a, a couple of schisms that arise as a result of Michael VIII's unionist policy, as it were. And uh, what it causes, it, to to simplify it uh, as much as we can, what it causes basically is the division of of the Byzantine church into pro-union and anti-union factions. Uh, And these factions over the course of the next couple hundred years are gonna develop polemics against one another. They're going to develop uh, bitter hatred of one another. Uh, They're gonna call each other heretics. And when the Turks end up conquering Constantinople in 1453, it's a no-brainer for them which faction they're gonna put in power. All right, it's, it's absolutely a no-brainer for them to put the anti-union, the most savage, anti-Latin polemicist that they can find in, in charge of the Byzantine church. Right? And so to some extent, the, the permanence of that anti-Latin outlook within Byzantine Christianity, it's really due to the Turkish conquest of Constantinople. Uh, certainly in the Middle Ages, the, the anti-unionist position was not the only position in the Byzantine church. Uh, its permanence, in part, we're gonna see is due to the success of the Turks. Um, Now, be that as it may, I think we can make one final point here about Michael VIII, uh, and that is in reference to the historiographical position that we enunciated before about why were the Turks able to conquer Constantinople in 1453, and and was it the fault of the Latins? Was it due to the Fourth Crusade that they were able to do this? And we said, no, we're going to show that that's wrong. I think one step towards showing that that's wrong is when you point out that the empire of Michael VIII was far stronger, far more powerful, far wealthier, and far more secure than was the Byzantine Empire that the Crusaders had conquered. Uh, The 12th century empire, the late 12th century empire, the empire of the Angeli, uh, was a Byzantine empire that was incredibly weak. It had been impoverished by a rash of rebellions. Its treasury had been emptied, uh, and its own political dissensions were what had invited the Crusaders to the capital in the first place. The Byzantine Empire, by the end of Michael VIII's reign, is, relatively speaking, secure, militarily and politically united, uh, with a treasury that, if not overflowing, if not bursting at the seams, the treasury and the budget seemed at least to be able to deal with immediate challenges. Let's put it that way. And so if you look at Byzantine imperial institutions by 1282, um, there's a strength there that you didn't see, say, a century earlier. Uh, and then <laughs> right before Michael VIII's uh, death he's, he, he, I think he died of happiness when this happened but the, <laughs> the, the Sicilian Vespers actually kicks Charles of Anjou out of Sicily and so Charles of Anjou as a viable Mediterranean political player he, he's done after the Sicilian Vespers no more worrying about Charles of Anjou uh, in fact it, it's pretty clear that Michael VIII actually paid the guys who staged the Sicilian Vespers which oh, good move uh, hats off to him for that Um Anyway, uh, so what we see here is Michael VIII's son, Andronicus II, he's going to inherit an empire that was stronger than it had ever been in recent memory, uh, with fewer and more humble enemies. And uh, Andronicus II would make some disastrous decisions uh, that would have serious, serious consequences for the Byzantine Empire. So remember, um, Andronicus II's reign is 1282 to 1328. So what did Andronicus II do? Why were his decisions so disastrous? Uh, Well, number one, he repudiated the Union of Lyon, which to some extent makes sense. The repudiation of the Union of Lyon Based on the internal circumstances of the Byzantine Empire at the time, uh, you know, there were very few high-ranking Byzantines who ever liked it anyway. Even the papacy wasn't too hot on the union of Lyon after they realized how mu- the, the percentage of the Byzantine clergy that rejected it was so high. Um, and, and in fact, in fact, Michael the Eighth had ended his life as a, as a man excommunicated by the papacy for a variety of other reasons. Uh, and so he he was on double secret excommunication because he. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know anyway this the the Union of Lyon, Andronicus decides this is basically a you know a, a dead letter, and we can't really blame him for that as harshly as we might want to because uh, well I mean on the one hand we can say with hindsight hindsight becomes wisdom we can say the Union of Lyon was very very hard to make happen it's very very easy to dissolve uh, restoring it would be well nigh impossible so you want to try to salvage it as long as you can and that that had been Michael VIII's policy Michael VIII was sort of holding out for changes in papal attitudes, changes in the attitudes of his own clergy so that he could somehow salvage this, this extremely fragile Union of Lyon. Andronicus decided that, that it wasn't worth salvaging. Uh, and maybe it's in, in part because the empire that he inherited was so strong. Right? It, it's a decision that to some extent made sense. Uh, so he repudiates the Union of Lyon. This is gonna cause him problems. in in his relations with the West. It's gonna cause him serious problems. Uh, He also made a decision that I think from a practical point of view, from a worldly point of view is even worse, which is he decided that it would be a good idea to dismantle the Byzantine Navy. Now, it it sounds weird. Why would he dismantle the Byzantine Navy? Why would you do that? Um, Andronicus II was one of these guys who uh, just really didn't grasp the fundamentals of fiscal responsibility, right? He he sort of looked around for things to cut from the budget. And he thought, oh, Navy, we don't really need a Navy. Why do we not need a Navy? Well, because we have the Genoese. The Genoese occupy the quarter of Galata, just north of the city of Constantinople. Uh, The Genoese are an ally that we can rely on. They're a very strong naval power. The Genoese are able to keep the Venetians in check, maybe, and uh, we can sort of make deals with them, rely on them as our navy. No need for us to have this huge chunk of our budget going towards the maintenance of a navy. Uh, Boats are expensive, ships are expensive, paying people is expensive, giving people land grants to pay their salaries, that's expensive. Uh, So he goes, here, we can slash the budget dismantles the Byzantine navy. Um, that's going to be a disaster. That's going to be an absolute disaster for him. Um, the other thing that he tries to do is he tries to save money by, instead of recruiting Byzantine soldiers, which involves using land grants to pay their salaries, uh, he, he recruits foreign mercenaries. Now, this is going to weaken Byzantium. It's going to result in, in the, the loss of lands, right, because the, the army is necessarily going to be smaller. And then the loss of lands is going to reduce income, thus, Undermining his savings, Um, but the the real problem with the foreign mercenaries that he recruits is that they tend to be very hard to control. When you recruit foreign mercenaries who don't have imperial interests at stake, they tend to sack things, they tend to burn cities, and go around burning crops and attacking people. It's it's just not good, Uh, and uh, and they're also not they're just flat out not as reliable as soldiers. And we see this really very early in his reign. He starts struggling with his mercenaries. Finally, in thirteen o one in 1301, a group of Byzantine mercenaries were defeated here by the Emir Osman. Now, Osman, of course, is the guy that we encounter who is the, the father and progenitor of the Ottoman dynasty. Osman was the first of the Ottomans. Now, if you look at this map in the year 1300, Osman's state, the area that he controls, this little nation to Ottoman state, it appears to be small. It appears to be one of several different emirates in Anatolia all of which were sort of vassals to the Mongols, uh, or and some of them were at various times vassals to the Byzantines. Uh, so you say to yourself, Osman, not a huge threat. And yet, right, and yet, due to demographic and financial realities in the Islamic world, the ability of these chiefs, these emirs in Anatolia, to recruit soldiers from elsewhere in the Islamic world uh, is about to be very much on the rise. These, are, these guys are gonna have the opportunity to recruit large numbers of soldiers from the Eastern Islamic world, soldiers who are either fleeing from the Mongols, who are defeated by the Mongols, or who belonged in the service of various emirs and chiefs who are defeated by the Mongols. Uh, basically, the rise of the Mongols is going to cause a flood of just loose. Turks and Islamic soldiers who have nothing to do and are willing to come and take service with, uh, with these emirs here in Anatolia. Osman is one of them. His descendants are going to go on to have you know, by far the greatest success of any of these dynasties. In fact, we can see in 1301 the empire acquiring a very, very dangerous enemy. Um, In the immediate, though, here in the first decade of the 14th century, it looked like the biggest threat to Byzantine security was these stupid mercenaries that they kept bringing in. Uh, The probably most infamous group of mercenaries that Andronicus II brought in were called the Catalan Grand Company, um, and they were, they were sort of these, these traveling Mediterranean adventurers. They were commanded by a guy named Roger, Roger de Fleur. And uh, they heard that there might be some good opportunities to make money by going and fighting for the Byzantines. So Roger de Flor sent a message, hey, Andronicus, I hear you're hiring soldiers. Andronicus said, yeah, what do you charge? They said, oh, it's you know not that much, but it's three times what you're paying all your other mercenaries, but you can afford it. And Andronicus signed the deal. Of course, he couldn't afford it. In fact, what he agreed, <laughs> what he agreed to pay the Catalan Grand Company, it exceeded the entirety of the Byzantine imperial budget. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was an absolute disaster. I don't know what he thought he was doing, because once you get the Catalan Grand Company there in the Byzantine Empire, you can't get rid of them and, uh, and then when you can't pay them and they get mad, they decide to pay themselves and they go on a kind of a seven year long rampage. Uh, they ended up landing in Greece uh, down here, kind of in this purple area uh, around 1310 is where the Catalan Grand Company ended up settling. Uh, they liked it, it was nice countryside and then we, we sort of lose track of them at that point. Um, Andronicus II also experimented with hiring Turkish mercenaries uh, who were similarly unreliable and uh, the net result is that by the end of his reign, by the end of Andronicus II's very, very, very long reign, the Byzantine Empire is kind of a wreck. And uh, he tries to fix things by increasing taxation. The taxation provokes a civil war. uh, And Andronicus II's uh, grandson, whose name is Andronicus III, is actually the the leader of the rebels. Uh, Eventually, the civil war is kind of averted by the death of Andronicus II in 1328. uh, And his grandson, Andronicus III, succeeds him. So it's interesting. The the situation in 1328 is ominous. And I think what it illustrates for us is that decision-making and leadership on the part of Byzantine emperors has a, a much bigger effect on the fortunes of the Byzantine state than anything that had been done a century earlier by the Fourth Crusade. These guys, especially Andronicus II, inherited vast resources and squandered them. Andronicus II was a thoroughly mediocre ruler at a time when Byzantium really needed a star. Uh, Andronicus III, his grandson, was a little bit more of a star. Uh, he actually had some uh, very important success restoring the Byzantine state after 1328. Most importantly, he reconquered um, Epirus. He reconquered that, this area over here in the Western Balkans. Uh, it was a very, very important victory. It won Andronicus III enormous prestige in the minds of the Turks, in the minds of the Latins, and in the minds of his own subjects. Uh, he intimidated the Serbs and the Bulgars into submission, and he also began negotiating for church union. Now, this is where, right, this is where things get really, really dicey for Andronicus III. Um, the theological issues that separated the Latin church from the Greek church by the 14th century had gotten very, very complicated. Um, Greek Orthodox polemics against Latin theology, uh, it's a tradition that goes way back. It goes back to the time of Photius and even, be, even beyond, back to the time of the Quinisex Council. So it's a very, very old tradition. Um, but for our purposes here, what we see is that the more time goes by, uh, the older the schism gets, uh, the more the issues ramify the more complicated the issues become. And so we see that here, during Andronicus III's negotiation for church union. Uh, Andronicus III sent uh, a delegate to kind of talk to the Westerners and also to talk to some Greek theologians about the issues that separate the Eastern and Western churches. And uh, the delegate's name was Barlam of Calabria. Barlam of Calabria was, uh, as his name suggests, he was a Greek speaker from the south of Italy, subject of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, Spiritually speaking, he was Byzantine, and he decides, okay, I I can be the Byzantine representative at these negotiations, because I'm also from Italy, and I understand the West. Um, Now, Barlam of Calabria made the mistake of suggesting, during the course of some of these conversations, that it was really pointless to debate about the procession of the Holy Spirit. You know, this is one of these old issues that separates the Latin and Greek churches. Uh, Ever since the the Carolingian times, the papacy had endorsed the idea of adding the filioque to the creed, saying that that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and putting that in the liturgy. Uh, The Greeks, of course, had always resisted this, and and it it was one of the things that they found particularly galling about Western liturgical practice. Uh, And so, you know, but throughout the Middle Ages, there had been various debates that dealt with a a lot of issues, not just the issue of putting it in the liturgy, but even the, the theology behind it, what they call, what the Greeks call, triadology, the study of the Trinity. And uh, Barlem of Calabria made the mistake of saying, well, we really can't see God. We really can't know God in this life. And so it, it's kind of pointless for us to be at each other's throats about the procession of the Holy Spirit. I mean, isn't that sort of silly? And uh, this provoked a massive reaction from the Byzantine monastic clergy, because the Byzantine monastic clergy believe that you can see God in this life if you pray properly. And the father of this this type of spiritual mysticism is known as Gregory Palamas. Gregory Palamas, the great defender of hesychasm. What is hesychasm? Hesychasm is something I couldn't possibly do justice to in a few minutes up here. I couldn't possibly do justice to it if I had all day. And I think the reason I couldn't do justice to it is because I haven't prayed in the hesychast tradition. Uh, I think with prayer and spirituality, it's dangerous to try to explain something that, that you haven't experienced yourself. So I, I, my ability to explain hesychasm is limited. Uh, but hesychasm, it was a, it was a monastic um, ascetic and mystical practice that had become traditional on Mount Athos, on the holy mountain. And um, what it was, was, it was basically the idea of attempting to achieve a kind of a union with God through repetitive prayer, specifically through the repetition of the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the monks believed that through the repetition of this prayer and through certain kinds of sensory deprivation, they could come in their mind's eye to see the light that surrounded the Holy Trinity. Now, why is this important in this context? It's important in this context because all of a sudden, hesychasm becomes a political issue. Hesychasm becomes a political issue in the Byzantine Empire, which ends up undermining Andronicus III. It ends up um, playing a major role in fueling Byzantine civil war in the 1340s. It ends ends up having a massive impact on the history of the 14th century Byzantine Empire um, because as, as is always the case in Byzantium, religious orthodoxy is what matters more so than anything. And while you have emperors who are willing to make compromises and flirt with Westerners and dabble in heterodox things, the clergy are always gonna be the defenders of orthodoxy as they see it. And so Gregory Palamas, the great defender of hesychasm, he said to Barlaam of Calabria, you're wrong. It's not pointless to debate about the Holy Spirit. It's a good idea to debate about the Holy Spirit. And, and you're wrong that we don't know God because we do know God because we see God when we meditate. And if you don't see God, then you're not meditating right. And Barlaam of Calabria said, well, what do you mean you see God? You mean the see the tr- you see the Trinity? And he said, no, we see the light, right, the light that surrounds the Trinity. And, and Gregory Palamas said, this, this light is, it's there. And Barlaam of Calabria said, I don't know what you're talking about, there's three persons in the Trinity. There's a Father, there's a Son, and there's a Holy Spirit. What's the light? And eventually Barlaam of Calabria ends up accusing Gregory Palamas of believing in a fourth person of the Trinity. Right. And this is partly true because the defenders of hesychasm, they tended to talk about the light as being uncreated. So if it's uncreated, uh, is it God? And if it's not God, then how is it uncreated? Right. It, it's, it, it sounds kind of arcane. It sounds, I mean, it, to us, to our ears, it, it might sound like an absurd debate, but it was a big, big deal because it was related to these efforts, these ecumenical efforts of Andronicus III, and it was related to the notion of what it means to be an Orthodox Christian. So hesychasm becomes a live political football then in the 14th century Byzantine Empire. Any emperor from this point on in the 14th century, any emperor who is tempted to seek church union with the West, to privilege alliances with the West, with the Genoese or the Venetians, he's going to be opposed by other factions in the Byzantine Empire who can invoke the support of the hesychasts. And that's the simplest way to put it, basically. It's not that these hesychastic monks were interested in taking power and using hesychasm to overthrow emperors. Rather, it's that hesychasm provides a, a, a kind of an impetus right, of popular opinion against flirting with Westerners politically. And this is something that's gonna, it's gonna weaken the Byzantine Empire drastically. And this is especially the case during the horrible civil war that afflicted the Byzantine Empire between 1341 and 1347. 1341 was the year of Andronicus III's death, and uh, this is a time when uh, all this whole debate about hesychasm is just coming to the fore. It's just becoming a public thing at this time, and his successor, uh, his son, John V, was only nine years old. So a nine-year-old needs a regent, and this is what's going to lead to all sorts of trouble. John V's regent was this fellow here, John Kantakusinus. Okay. So the two Johns would fight a bitter civil war from 1341 to 1347. Uh, During the course of this civil war, the only winners were the Turks. As you can imagine, this is a time when unity was never more important for the Byzantine Empire. Clarity of purpose was never more important for Byzantine emperors. And it's during this period that that Byzantine political and military fortunes in the Aegean world are going going to go into a steep decline. Uh, How does the Civil War start? How do these things ever start? Uh, John Contacusinus, the regent, was out on campaign. While he was out on campaign, there was a, a little coup back home involving the patriarch, the emperor's mother, and one of the grand dukes, and the three of them formed a regency. Uh, And they got, they actually got mobs together. They encouraged urban mobs in Constantinople to ransack the houses of supporters of the Contacuzinus family and and to ransack the houses of the Contacuzinus family themselves. Uh, And so when this happened, of course, John Contacuzinus naturally recruits an army to come back and, and retake control of the capital. But where does he recruit the army from? He recruits Turks. He recruited Umar of Aydin, who is one of these emirs. Uh, Later on, John John Kontakuznus would also recruit members of the Ottoman family to fight on his side as well. To keep it simple, basically, uh, the civil war drags on for six years, and uh, the regency in Constantinople, that coalition of the patriarch, the emperor's mother, the grand duke, and then the boy emperor, John V, uh, they have a very, very hard time hanging in there in a long war against an experienced commander like John Uh Eventually, the Turks are taking advantage of the civil war, the Serbians are taking advantage of the civil war, uh, and... What makes things especially dicey for the regency is that the supporters of Gregory Palamas and the supporters of the Athenite monks and the supporters of hesychasm all side with John Contacuzinus. And so the regency is finally weakened. Um, the, the Contacuzinites end up digging a tunnel under the walls of Constantinople, coming into the city. I have no idea how they did that, but that's what the sources say. I mean, maybe they dug a tunnel under a gate or something. If you've seen these walls, you can't dig under them. But uh, they they somehow tunneled into the city. And when they got in, nobody had the heart to fight them. The Civil War ended in 1347. Uh, But the reconciliation of 1347, it's very much an uneasy one. And it, it creates a very, very weak empire which then, as the two Johns rule together from 1347 until 1354, with John Kontakuznus kind of being the senior partner here, um, things just go from bad to worse. O- the obvious thing that happens in 1347 is what? Obvious, Western Civ, 1347, what happens? Black Death. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, So the Black Death takes a major toll on the Byzantine Empire. It actually takes a much more serious toll on the Byzantines than it does, say, on the Serbs or the Turks. And there are reasons for that. There are reasons for that. right? An empire that depends on tax revenue, an empire that depends on a monetized economy, an empire that that has to pay in coin to its soldiers, uh, is gonna suffer more from something like the Black Death because of what it does to the tax rolls. They're gonna suffer more from it than these Turkish emirs who have an endless supply of recruits coming in from the Mongol Khanate. Uh, and so what happens is the, what the Byzantine Empire, by 1354, uh, by the end of this, uh, of this dual um, rule by the coalition, the Byzantine Empire is a wreck. Things continue then to go from bad to worse um, as these guys, uh, the, these Turkish uh, rulers, established themselves in Western Europe. Um, you know, by, by the 1350s, they were well established on the European side of the Straits. In Kalipolis, they were able to expand their nation Ottoman state across Thrace uh, to actually uh, fight battles against the Serbs and the Bulgars. Oh, that's a terrible map. This isn't showing. Uh, what, th- what that... I'll skip that slide because it's not really showing up. What that map was, was attempting to show was the fact that by 1385, the Byzantine Empire had been reduced to a couple of cities, a couple of coastal cities. Constantinople, Thessalonica, and a a few other enclaves. Thessalonica would fall in 1387. The Byzantine Empire by this point is in irreversible decline. In fact, by the time you get to the 1390s, no intelligent person in the 1390s would have imagined that the Byzantine Empire would have lasted as long as it did. And so, of course, who's gonna fill the vacuum? It's obviously going to be the Turks. Um, And uh, eventually what we'll find is that as the Turks surround Constantinople, advances in technology Are going to make it so that these walls can no longer keep keep the turks out artillery is going to play a part in this and overwhelming numbers are going to play a part in this by the 1390s everybody would have felt that constantinople was in fact doomed so that's part one part two will be next sunday
2: all right so question and answer session we always keep this short so if you have a question um, make sure that your question is one sentence long, that it has a question mark on the end, and uh, that it has to do with the topic at hand. So about what he talked about tonight, if you're wanting to, to continue on unto, into next week with his continuation, just hold that question until he gets there. And Dr. McGuire, just make sure that your answers are short enough that I can get in a couple questions, if that's okay. Sounds good. Great. Who's got a question for me? I was surprised, but I gather, that the Turks were not the native people in that area. Is that right? The way you were talking, it sounds like there were Turks and then they started moving. sounds right. like Turks were some
0: other people that weren't living in this area. Yeah.
3: No, this is the problem in history, generally. You become the native people after a while, uh, and uh, I think that is uh, that is true. In, in, in modern Turkey, the Turks weren't always there. It wasn't always Turkey. Um, so. Uh, Anatolia, um, what we call Asia Minor, um, it's an area that was, uh, historically speaking, populated by a whole variety of different, different ethnicities, Isaurians, Phrygians, all these different kinds of people. Um, it became more homogenous and more Greek after the Islamic conquests of the Near East. Um, uh, there were a lot of people who were relocated into Asia Minor and Anatolia. Especially troops who are given land grants there and stuff like that. So, um, so Asia Minor becomes very much more Greek-speaking and and more and the Byzantine Empire as a whole becomes uh, a smaller, leaner, meaner, more homogeneous thing uh, in in the seventh century. Um, so yeah, the Turks themselves. Uh, it, it is one of these things talking about where people come from. I, I think. Uh, one of the refreshing things about postmodernity is, is the realization that a lot of the ideas that we had about race uh, in modern times are actually nonsense, and um, in, in point of fact, people, people of diverse ethnicities are... are <sighs> genetically sometimes very close to one another, and, uh, and sometimes you know two Irish people could be genetically very different from one another, and, and really the, the whole notion of, of race and bloodlines as it was understood in the 19th and 20th centuries is, is a really misleading uh, thing. So, so I, there has to be that caveat when you talk about where people came from, because when you talk about nomadic peoples, a lot of times it's like talking about George Washington's Axe. Uh, you know right, we got three new handles and five new blades over the last two hundred years, but it 's the original axe you know i don 't know it's uh, it, it, what I mean by that is by the time peoples have migrated over the course of centuries um, across many different territories you 've had the amalgamation of different ethnicities and tribes and groups and things into them, insofar as the Turks are a coherent people uh, they 're Central Asian nomads who are rec- uh, recruited into the service of the Abbasid Caliphate starting in the ninth century. Uh, and later became numerous enough and powerful enough to undermine the authority of the Abbasid Caliphs, and uh, and then, of course, to threaten Byzantium. Uh, As far as Byzantine history is concerned, the key date is 1071, which is the Battle of Manzikert, uh, when the the Seljuk Turks kind of shattered the, the army of Romanos IV, Diogenes, and were then able to settle in Anatolia.
4: Yeah, apropos the last question, the Turks were the Turks, but who were the Byzantines ethnically?
3: Ethnically, oh, see that—that's an even more interesting question. That's actually that's a much more interesting question, um, because um, during the uh, during the seventh century, uh, the Balkan Peninsula and Greece uh, were settled very, very heavily by Slavs, uh, and so I mean. This is why it gets dicey when you talk about ethnicity, right? Um, Even later in the Middle Ages, even into the modern period, the the Balkan Peninsula and, and Greece, you could argue are heavily Slavic, even in areas where people spoke Greek. Uh, and um, so what does ethnicity mean at that point? It, it's hard to say. But, um, but basically, yeah, the, the Byzantines were the descendants of the various Greek, Slavic, um, Cappadocian, Isaurian, Phrygian peoples who, who had lived in that region for, for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, you got certain isolated Greek populations, uh, like the, the Pontic Greeks around Trebizond, uh, who were the theoretically the descendants of, of Greek um, colonists uh, from you know, from, from the archaic period, right? You know, so say from, from the 7th or 6th century BC, and, uh, and when they were moved by the Turkish Republic, when Ataturk uh, kicked them out and sent them to Greece, uh, they were told, oh, you're being shipped home, and, and this is very puzzling to them because the, this was the only home that they had ever known even going back hundreds of years before Christ. Uh, so you know, it is, the, the, so it, it's easy to on the one hand say the Byzantines were Greek ethnically, uh, but we have to qualify that by saying that the, they're, they're more ethnically diverse than that and uh, no good Byzantine ever would have called himself a Greek either because the, the, the word Greek meant pagan. Uh, the, to say that you were a Hellenos or whatever, it, it's, it, it meant that you were, were a pagan and that you worshiped Apollo. And, uh, so they, they, they wouldn't have called themselves Greeks. The, the only people who used the term Greeks uh, for Byzantines were Westerners who called them Greci Uh, and Byzantine chroniclers who pretended to be Thucydides and uh, pretended to be Xenophon by writing in Attic Greek. And so that they would use the same terms that that Thucydides or Xenophon would have used. Uh, And it's even kind of comical in the late Middle Ages when you see Byzantine chroniclers who Um, they try to circumlocute around using a term like bishop or something like that because Xenophon didn't know what a bishop was or something. And, you know, it it, it gets kind of odd when you get into that classicizing thing. But really, the term Greek, uh, it's not one that Byzantines themselves would have claimed. The Byzantines called themselves Romans. They were Romans, the the Romaioi, and the Turks called them Rum, and the Arabs called them Rum. Uh, And so, you know, when you had the first Seljuk sultanate in Anatolia, it was called the Sultanate of Rum which means Rome, uh, because they thought of it as Byzantine territory and therefore Roman.
4: There are a number of, uh, of the different groups on your mm-hmm. on your chart. It would seem to me that they probably didn't trust one another. Uh-huh. Couldn't, couldn't a, a, a dynamic or a, a dominant power so enough discontent and hate and mm. so forth in there to keep the others fighting each other so that they can pretty much do what they want?
3: Yeah, no, that, that's a great idea. And to some extent, Manuel Second Paleologus later on, tried to do that, um, but by that point, Byzantium had already been so weakened that it was kind of irreversible. Uh, it, it's kind of like, the I, I don't know, the, I, they, I saw a headline about irreversible climate change or something like that, that the Antarctic ice is now melting so fast that there's no possible way to stop it, even if we went down there with 10,000 freezers and tried to stop it. But uh, you know, it, it, to some extent, that happens with with Byzantium, where at a certain point, institutional decline, political and military decline, and fiscal decline uh, it becomes, as it were, irreversible um, because there, there no longer is a base for the Byzantine Empire to exist. In fact, the, the walls of Constantinople, those monumental fortifications, they, they, give, it, they give the empire uh, a kind of an unnaturally long life in this period. Right? There's no way a normal city would have hung on until 1453 here. Hello. Good evening.
4: I have uh, just, uh, I guess, two questions. The first one is more of a confirmation. Uh, you, you did say that the, uh, the anti-union faction of the Byzantine, uh-huh. uh, while it came to fruition during the, uh, uh, once Constantinople fell and the Turks basically took over, but it really it, it began first amongst themselves, correct?
3: Right. The, the division of, the, of Byzantine Christians into pro-union and anti-union factions. Uh, it it really dates to the time of Michael VIII Palaeologos. Um, and the the triumph of the anti-Unionist faction, the final triumph of the anti-Unionist faction, it is the Turkish conquest of the city. Uh, the, the Turks went and they found Gennadius Golarios, who was um, by far the most prolific anti-Latin polemicist, and they made him the patriarch of, of Constantinople. And uh, the Turks saw to it, uh, you know, part of their, their protection of the Byzantine church was that they were heavily involved in selecting the patriarch and they sometimes executed patriarchs and things like that um, and so part of it was to um, to promote that anti-unionist theology among the Byzantines uh, who were subject to them because that was the one antidote against you know the, the great crusade that they feared coming from the west.
4: Thank you and just the second question was uh, who were the Illyrians during that time because I saw the uh, the, the, the map and it really doesn't show the Illyrians because mo- most of the time before the Serbs came into the uh, uh, Balkan mm-hmm. Peninsula, most of the Orthodox churches were uh, Illyrian Orthodox churches, which are now basically uh, uh, been taken over by the Serbs during, during that time.
3: Um, I think the Illyrian Orthodox Church would be an example of that kind of classicizing nomenclature um I- I- illyrian it, it, it that would be an ancient term for that region um so you know so diocletian was illyrian um theoretically the, the, the Di- diocletian and um you know Maximian and Galerius and all these guys were they were Illyrian. Um, Illyricum in in the United Empire was, was the crossroads of Latin and Greek culture, basically. So even a guy like Justinian was basically an Illyrian in the sense that he was he was a native Latin speaker, right? Um, now the um, I'm not familiar with the with the idea of an Illyrian Orthodox Church though. That, that I'm just not familiar with that notion. Uh, I think. Ethnically speaking, what you would have in the Balkan Peninsula, generally there, and and in what would have been Illyricum, uh, is you would have the descendants of 7th century Slavic immigrants, basically, to that area. So, you know, various kinds of Slavs would have lived there. Uh, You would have had, the Hungarian king would have been a major political player, in this area. So somebody like Sigismund I, the king of Hungary, had major ambitions in that region. Uh, The Venetians had ambitions there, and then certainly the Serbs and the Bulgars. um, And and that extends into early modernity, um, even when the Serbs and the Bulgars and people like that were vassals of the Turks. Uh, there still is this dream of a a greater Serbian empire, a greater Bulgarian empire, or a greater Hungarian empire, somehow incorporating that area. It is a cultural crossroads, uh, we'll say that. But I'm not aware that there was a discrete ethnicity called Illyrians in this period.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. McGuire. Uh,
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.